This Sunday on Capital Connection, the vaccine is finally here for everyone. Opening COVID-19 vaccination appointments to all residents 16 years of age and over. Governor Pritzker traveling the state promoting how the government plans to recover from the coronavirus even as new hospitalizations and infections creep up and try to spoil that full recovery. While we work to get everyone vaccinated to overcome the pandemic health challenges, we must invest in job growth to overcome the economic challenges brought on by COVID-19. How hospitals and convention centers are faring in Illinois after a year where they saw 80% of their revenue vanish. It's just been devastating. And after a year where the coronavirus disrupted many family lives, others are trying to start a family for the first time. House Democrat Margaret Croak joins us to explain her fight to expand the definition of infertility care. It's all coming up on Capital Connection. From the Illinois State Capitol Rotunda, Capitol Bureau Chief Mark Maxwell is asking the tough questions. This is Capital Connection. Welcome to Capital Connection. I'm Mark Maxwell reporting from the Illinois State House on this Sunday, April 11. Starting tomorrow on Monday, everyone 16 and over in Illinois is eligible for the vaccine. As Illinois sits on the precipice of opening COVID-19 vaccination appointments to all residents 16 years of age and over. Governor Pritzker announced Illinois would exceed the White House deadline to make that vaccine available statewide. Today, about one year from the beginning of the pandemic, the state of Illinois alone has administered over 6.7 million doses of vaccine. 73% of our seniors and 42% of our 16 and over population has had at least one dose. The vaccine rollout bringing Vice President Kamala Harris to visit Illinois Tuesday. Her visit on the same day, President Biden announced everyone 16 and older would become eligible to get the vaccine starting April 19th in one week from now, moving his deadline up two weeks. Please help us to tell your friends and your family members and your coworkers that when it's their turn to get vaccinated. Remind people of their power to do something that will save their lives. The people who carry the most weight are our peers and the people we respect. So I'm here to ask you to do a little bit more and help us so we can truly get back up on our feet. How long should we continue with wearing masks? Wearing a mask will save your life and the life of people around you and it is just a smart thing to do. Meanwhile, Governor Pritzker toured the state, stopping in Rockford and Champaign, promoting government programs to assist in the recovery from the pandemic. We're trying to provide for schools what the next few years is going to look like. The coronavirus may have changed the classroom forever. We see quite an evolution about what teaching and learning looks like. When students left class, educators worked to plug them in on tablets, laptops, and devices. What we've learned from this, this past year is that school can occur beyond the walls and the classrooms, that the structure that we know as schools. Now, some of those habits could hold long term. We have to not only tweak online learning and learn the lessons moving forward, but we also have to enhance those who cannot access education offline. As teachers adapt to the new normal and try to incorporate more flexible schedules, hybrid or remote learning, and a more digital personalized learning plan, the state is urging districts to use that $7 billion in federal funding to expand or create new programs like high-impact tutoring or after-school programs. But school boards still have some concerns. If you start the program, then how do we take it on in perpetuity as a district and how do we fund it? Well, that is absolutely something that two or three years from now will have to be addressed. When that money runs out, school districts could look to the state to keep them open. 
But the governor said that's a problem for another year, for now. He's reminding voters why this money arrived in the first place. This is a result of the change of control of Congress, the change of control in the presidency, uh, and the fact that the president of the United States put forward an American rescue plan that is good for schools all across the nation. The coronavirus made it a contentious year in the classroom and animated the electorate heading into school board elections on Tuesday night. But would voters and parents especially register any anger at the polls? We looked in a key area on the map, the battleground of the suburbs, sure to be the deciding factor in many statewide races in 2022 to see what clues we could learn about how voters are feeling now. Most challengers are running because they don't think schools opened quickly enough. Brent Clark with the Illinois Association of School Administrators noticed a trend this election. This is the first time I've ever done anything like this. A lot of new first time candidates running for school board after a challenging year. Allison Fostick jumped into a crowded race in Naperville. It's been really divided over the pandemic, right? There are some parents who were like, our kids need to be in school right now. She won the fourth and final board seat there. So did newcomer Amanda McMillan at the district next door. But how do we open up safely and how do we bring these kids back and how do we support with like uh, closing the learning gap? She said she heard a lot of frustration from parents during the pandemic. And some families feel like my kids' mental health is really struggling here and they need to have be in school. They need to have that social connection. And uh, this board moved too slowly. But in both Naperville districts, every incumbent on the ballot also won, including Charles Cush. Quite a competitive campaign. Um, rigorous campaign, uh, you know, with everything going on with uh, with COVID-19. I think the understanding of the management of the pandemic is on trial. Cush and the board in Naperville did not cave to parents who called on them to reopen classrooms sooner. But all that pressure did take a toll. I think people are, are one, frustrated. I think people are weary. There's no question people are burnt out. That showed up statewide as scores of school board members decided not to run for re-election this year. They've had nothing but grief for the last uh, 12 and a half months. And I'm certain we're gonna see a larger turnover in board members in this election than we've likely seen in many years. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. The coronavirus has disrupted many industries and business operations over the last year, but it has also added a number of new uh, frustrations or, or upheaval for families, classrooms, and communities as well, especially as schools have closed and started to reopen, all of those creating a mix of challenges. We've seen as many as 3 million mothers leaving the workforce nationwide. Joining us now is one of those working moms, a new House Democrat, Margaret Croak, elected just last year to the Illinois House. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I want to ask you how you're juggling uh, some of this just yourself with your own personal duties, but also the strain we know that uh, parents are feeling across Illinois. How are you juggling all of that? So I can speak from personal experience that it's, it's been really tough. Um, it was tough in March when I, uh, I went back to work for the state prior to being uh, a representative. And I had to work for three months full time. My husband was working full time and we had a four month old. Um, it was a juggling act. And there were times where I'm sure like a lot of other moms, you'd find me truly, you'd find me on the kitchen floor just completely overwhelmed. 
uh, with what I had to do to make sure that my son was continuing to develop or just maybe not crying, <laughs> maybe sleeping, and then also being the best employee I could be. Um, it, it was really difficult. And I think we've seen that with the moms exiting the workforce. It's basically a mom's recession, right? We're seeing that moms, we know that they overwhelmingly carry the burden of childcare, even in households where you want to say it's a 50-50 situation, like moms step up and it's been too much. Um, I, we need to figure out how to get moms back in the workforce. Uh, and what that looks like, I think, is a mixture of both making sure childcare is accessible, getting people vaccinated, getting kids back in school. Um, it's going to be it's going to be tough, I think, for the next couple months as we try to figure this out. Yeah, there's been a lot of discussion on the tech or innovation side about how the pandemic sort of accelerated years of growth and packed it all into one time. It forced us to grow, but it also uh, sort of took us backwards 20 or 30 years in, in other ways, maybe the way society looks at gender roles or the way parents handle the duties in the home. Yeah, I think there's two different things there. One, you have, um, you have, and apologize, you're going to hear kids in my background probably because that's life nowadays, right? But that's the technology. So we have situations where moms are able to have the flexibility of working from home and then also trying to take care of their kids. But that's the problem. Moms are working from home. And then there's also this expectation that they're able to take care of their kids and do virtual learning. Um, so you're just completely compounding the issue. I think a lot of moms actually want to get back into the office um, or parents want to get back into the office. I think we're going to see, while I understand that things have been accelerated, so people are working from home, there are going to be a lot of people who are ready to kind of separate where they work and where they relax at the end of the day. I want to get your reaction to the way voters voiced their opinions earlier this week. On Tuesday, there were uh, local school board elections spanning across the state, and there were a number of uh, voters angry at some of the uh, frustrations, some of the changes that they felt at the school board level, at the local level, uh, businesses and all of that. And there were some organized efforts to oust a board here or to fire a district superintendent there. But in almost every case, especially in the battleground suburbs, which could be very key for Governor Pritzker's uh, and, and the statewide races in 2022, in almost every case there, the incumbent school board members who made the decision to take their time to side with a scientist's advice and, and, and not rush back into the classroom, they won almost all of their races. I wonder what that tells you about voters' opinions, where voters' heads are at uh, right now. I think it tells us that parents are concerned about their children getting sick and they're also concerned about their teachers getting sick. And that's the truth of it. I think you've seen that there are a loud group of parents who, and I, I actually really do sympathize with them because everyone is getting to their breaking point where they're seeing their kids fall behind or they also need to, they're struggling and they need to get back to work. There's, there's so many, we all can relate to that. But at the end of the day, you know, our children are not vaccinated. And there are still a lot of parents who are feeling like, I don't want to send my kid back into a classroom setting. Um, they may just be a little bit more uh, reserved in expressing those opinions online than maybe the other group who is just so passionate about getting their kids back into school. And I don't want to say that one is wrong and one is right. I just, because I sympathize with both groups. Um, but if we're looking at purely from an election standpoint, it's clear to me 
that the parents who are wanting their kids to be safe and their teachers to be safe right now, um, they, they were the majority. Yeah, I suppose you could say it's a new kind of silent majority, if you will. I want to focus on something that you're working on right now in Springfield. Uh, there are a lot of we talked about the frustrations and the difficulties many parents have faced, but there are other people who would give anything to become a parent for that first time. Uh, some have a very difficult time with that, not just in uh, conception, but also in uh, the insurance coverage, the health care coverage uh, for infertility treatments. Some people don't have access to that today. Uh, who are some of those people who right now can't get access to fertility care? Yeah, so right now the definition of infertility is restricted to um, a relationship where um, a woman can biologically carry a child with their partner. And they have to try for 12 months with unprotected sex to be able to conceive. And then after that point, if they can't conceive, they are able to access fertility treatments. Um, obviously, by that definition, we are leaving out a huge portion of people who want to be parents. That includes single women, um, LGBTQ couples, um, and also women who have um, issues to like caring medically. Let's say they had a surgery previous to trying for a year. They After a year, they would be able to access that fertility treatment. But why are we making them try for a year when we know, when their physician knows that they aren't going to be able to carry um, a pregnancy, um, either conceive or carry a pregnancy to term. So this is an existing mandate. What I'm trying to do with this mandate is make sure that it doesn't discriminate against people who do want to become parents. Very interesting. And it sounds like you're saying there's a fast track or accelerated timeline in there as well. It sounds like you're saying if if people should not have to wait that extra year, would there be no waiting period if uh, if their doctor just says this person needs the care? If, if the physician determines that medically a woman will say cannot carry the, um, the pregnancy or conceive, then they don't have to go through that year long period. As well as women who are over 35, they will only have to try um, to conceive for six months under this new um, amendment. But uh, women who can biologically conceive with their partner and are under 35 will still have to go through that 12-month waiting period of, of trying to conceive before they can access fertility treatment. Very interesting idea. I'm sure a number of people will watch this very closely, a personal matter to a lot of families trying to uh, grow their family. I think I read somewhere there was someone like that in your district who brought this idea to your attention. What was their story? Yeah, so back in March when I won the uh, the election, I had a constituent reach out to me, um, Dr. Marcus, Dr. Zachary Marcus, and he and his partner had been exploring how to start a family and what they had come across is just the barrier after barrier, financial barrier of being able to not only get a surrogate, which, you know, is a whole other process, but just being able to pay for uh, sperm collection and your egg donor and um, ovulation stimulation, like all of these things that we don't think about because they're so accessible for women in this situation, but are just so expensive for any type of couple who's trying to have a child, um, but is not able to naturally conceive. And, um, you know, it's been really hard to be a mom during the pandemic, but I wouldn't change it. I'm so blessed to have my child and he is every single day. I'm so lucky and I love him so much. And just this idea of taking that away from someone because of who they love is 
um, it's pretty heart-wrenching. Like there are people who want to be parents and I don't think that we should be determining who becomes a parent because of um, financial barriers or because they are in a same-sex relationship or they're a single woman. Like being a mom and being a wife are two different things. You can want to be a mom and not be a wife. Um, so I, I just think it's important that we make sure everyone has access to whatever fertility treatments they want to seek out. Would this apply to private health insurers, to public ones like Medicaid as well? All encompassing, how does it work? So this would only apply to, so the Department of Insurance and the state mandate only applies to 20% of um, our health insurance plans at the state. So it's the mixture of, um, it's private health insurers. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield though, has come on as a proponent to the legislation. Um, and they are very supportive of making sure that this already existing mandate does not discriminate um, against their, um, their clients and, and who uh, gets access to their insurance coverage. Some of these procedures can be quite expensive. You've already alluded to that here. I imagine some of those health insurance providers might say, well, this is gonna drive the cost of health insurance up. So that's, that's actually a really interesting you, point you bring up. Um, I've looked at four other states that have comprehensive health insurance um, for fertility treatments and they don't discriminate against um, individuals and, and their, you know, their, uh, their sexual orientation. Um, and overall in New York, I'm going to use New York just because it's probably the most similarly situated to Illinois. Um, if you look at all of those individuals, so women, women included women who were covered in Illinois before, um, per member, their health insurance only increased 55 cents. So everyone. So I, I can't tell you exactly what this added population will be, but it's gonna be less than 55 cents. And, and you might say worth it. Oh, 100% worth it. And I think that anyone who has gone through a fertility treatment can sympathize and say that I'll pay 30 cents for uh, one of the, another family in Illinois to be able to go through this process. And fertility treatments are not fun. They are very hard emotionally, physically, um, and if anyone wants to go forward with this, I mean, one of the things I've gotten a few people come to me is saying that, well, now everyone's going to try to have a baby. <laughs> well, not, this is really tough. Like fertility treatments are very tough. So no, I don't think that everyone is just going to go out and have a baby. I don't think single women are going to go line up and start accessing this fertility treatment. Um, they've really thought about whether they want to be a mom and they're going to take advantage of it if they can because they want to be a mom. Yeah, I'm still trying to figure out just how to handle a cat. So it's a lot there for sure. Uh, parents have a lot on their plate. I think a lot of people will watch this closely. We'll certainly stay tuned as this idea comes forward in Springfield and uh, things start to pick up the next uh, few weeks here. I may have missed this during your campaign recently as you were running, but should Chicago have an elected school board? Yeah, I believe that Chicago should get an elected school board. Um, we're kind of- Has the mayor waffled on that? What? Has the mayor flip-flopped on that position? I think she has. I remember during the campaign that she was very pro-elected school board. I don't know if she has maybe an issue with elected school boards or the legislation that's written, because we all know there are nuances in legislation. Like sometimes it sounds great. The short title sounds great, but we don't know what's in it. Um, but I think she's, she's not pro whatever is moving in Springfield right now. So it's disappointing. All right, House Democrat Margaret Croak, thank you for joining us. We look forward to seeing you down here in Springfield. Okay, great.
see you. And when we come back, a closer look at how the coronavirus has derailed the hospitality industry as hotels try to reopen for large events. That's next. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. More than a year ago, almost every industry in our state and across the country took a massive hit as the coronavirus closures started to set in. Perhaps one of the last industries waiting to come back online to its full capacity might be hotels, convention centers across Illinois. Joining us now is the head of the Illinois Hotel and Lodging Association, Michael Jacobson uh, from Elgin. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, I know that you guys have been very uh, involved in trying to offer the state advice or, or uh, guidance on how to reopen safely. Uh, what, what are the biggest obstacles you're facing right now in getting, getting there? We were encouraged by the governor's announcement around the bridge phase and obviously with, with hospitalization rates increasing across the state that that advancement into the bridge phase has hit the pause button a little bit. Uh, we're hopeful that these numbers will start to stabilize and we'll enter that bridge phase here in a short time because that's really what the game changer is in terms of meetings and events for our hotels. Some meetings and these extremely large ballrooms or convention centers will begin to be able to hold up to a thousand people under that bridge phase. And when you look at the total amount of revenue, what that means for our hotels, up to half of every hotel's revenue depends on group travel, which is meetings, events, weddings, social gatherings. Yeah, and those were the things that everybody put on pause for so long. It, I, I don't know if uh, how many people understand just the staggering amount of, of revenue and commerce that happens in this lane. Uh, do you have a ballpark figure or how would you describe or put into context uh, the, the, the economic hit that hotels took this last year? It's just been devastating when you look at how many hotels are still suspended across the state. Obviously, it's much more impactful in the city of Chicago, where there's even more than anywhere else in the state on conventions, um, where we have about two dozen hotels that are still suspended right now. But you look at across the state and we took a three and a half billion dollar hit in 2020 compared to revenue in 2019. It's it's about an 80 percent drop. And it's not even just the revenue, it's the, the tax revenue that we generate for the state as well. We, we've said for years that without all the different tax revenue that hotels generate, whether it's the hotel tax, sales tax, all the different taxes we generate, that each Illinois household would have to pay $1,600 more in taxes each year to make up for those losses. And unfortunately, we never we never thought we'd live to the day to actually see that scenario play out, but here we are. I don't know many businesses that could uh, withstand losing 80% of their revenue. I, I imagine there are, are, have there been closures? There have, so most of them were temporary closures. Uh, we have some, seen some foreclosures, some high visibility ones. Um, particularly in the Chicagoland area. What people don't realize is that these hotels aren't owned by the major brands like Marriott or Hilton or Hyatt. These are all locally owned and individually owned and operated. And they're just operating under a franchise agreement with those brands. So these are your neighbors and, and people right down the street that own and invest in these hotels. And, and unfortunately over the past year, a lot of them have lost their properties to foreclosure. Is it, I asked that question because uh, State Senator Sarah Feigenholz gave some dire warnings just two or three weeks ago. She said if we didn't do more to uh, not open the floodgates necessarily, but find that dial where we can start to reopen some of these larger events, then Chicago and Illinois might start losing these convention centers, not just 
in 2021, but perhaps forever, because once they find that new home, it's a lot harder to come back. It, how, how would you, uh, are we on pace to retain some of those events or is some of that already lost? What's, what's the latest? It's a combination of both. Some of them have been lost. We've already lost business to, to states like Florida, Indiana, Wisconsin, Missouri, uh, that have been opened up quicker. And, uh, but what we're hopeful is, especially with that bridge phase announcement and, and eventually advancing into phase five, hopefully this summer, that we'll be in a position to host those larger gatherings come later this year and into 2022. So we're hopeful that uh, we'll, we'll be in a position to be able to bring those people back and that we'll be able to start rehiring our workers. It's, it, the question becomes, are we going to be in a position to just hold on that long while we wait for those large events to come back next year? Mm -hmm. you, you led me to my next question, which was how would you, do you have any way to compare uh, the industry and its performance during the coronavirus in Illinois to that of other states? It sounds like, at least anecdotally, you do. We do. We look at uh, key metrics like occupancy rate, average daily rate, the rate that you pay to get a room. We look at uh, several key metrics, both throughout regions of Illinois, but also nationally. And what you've seen is that Illinois is certainly lagging. And many states that have had these restrictions in place uh, are definitely lagging compared to states that have reopened quicker. And that's what we've been saying all along. In terms of meetings and events within our hotels, we have proven mechanisms and significant guidelines developed by the state as well as the CDC to make sure that people are kept safe when they're at these events, making sure that they're that there's social distancing and, and many other provisions. Um, but ultimately, uh, what we're focused on right now is also making sure that hotel owners just have the resources that when demand starts to increase, which we are seeing some optimism and some encouraging signs of growth in the state, one problem they have right now is that they don't necessarily have the resources or the cash on hand to rehire their workers that are needed to come back to work to handle that increase in demand. Yeah, another thing that is curious is in the last year or so, as every one of these annual conventions have taken their operation online, or most of them by and large, and as businesses that had meetings planned started to do those things online, you wonder how many of those habits will stick and will that affect the long-term demand for events like these? Maybe, maybe there are some that will opt to stay remote or to have smaller events or business travelers who once would try to go to a place, they just might get an Airbnb and hole up somewhere else. Do you see the hotel business model changing or evolving, or how will that uh, adaptation take place in the, in the next few years, do you think? For the short term, there's definitely going to be some changes. There's a lot of conversation around what looks like a hybrid event, where some people are there in person, some people are tuning in remotely. But ultimately, we've been in this position and have had this conversation before. In 2008, when uh, during the economic recession, after 9-11, when travel came to a halt, obviously, we didn't have technologies like Zoom at the time, but we did have conference calls. We had phones. We had email. And the conversation was exactly the same. Will business travel come back? And I think what people realize is nothing replaces uh, being face-to-face, -face, especially when you're trying to make a business deal or where you're trying to learn something. Look at some of these educational conferences that take place in our hotels. Um, even looking at the legislature, it, it look, it, any legislator you talk to right now says how hard it has been to formulate policy and legislate during the pandemic because we've done it remotely. So I think ultimately people realize nothing replaces the in-person meetings and I think it will be back. 
I think most people will agree. People beats pixels on a screen any day. Uh, you're asking the state, though, for some help here. Uh, I, I understand the tourism uh, committee was meeting Thursday this week, and, and you're looking for, what is it, grant money from the state to help prop up hotels or help them make their recovery? How, how would hotels use this money, and why, why, would, uh, why, why should the state step in here? Uh, is that federal money you're looking for? How, how does it work? So what it is, it's a hotel jobs recovery plan, and we're mimicking it off of a successful program that Washington, D.C. launched uh, late last year using CARES Act money. We're proposing to use uh, the money that's coming to Illinois from the American Rescue Plan, from the feds, uh, the ARP plan that was recently passed by Congress. In the bill itself, it specifies that any money that the state receives, that a portion of those funds should be used to aid travel, tourism, and hospitality companies. And what we're proposing that we use this money to do is provide these hotels the, the resources to rehire their staff. We're saying that 80% of any money that a hotel would receive has to go to wages and benefits to the employees. Because what we're seeing right now is that uh, leisure demand is increasing and our occupancy is starting to increase. And we do have a need for, for more workers to be rehired. However, there's no cash on hand to actually go out and rehire those workers because it, the, the demand's not increasing at a pace quick enough to actually pay those paychecks. So it would just be a one-time short-term infusion of support just to be able to rehire those employees. And again, a bulk of that money would go directly to wages and benefits just to get our hotel workers back to work. Over 21,000 people in our industry were laid off during the pandemic. A majority of them are still out of work. And our goal is, is just to get them back to work as quickly as we can. And it sounds like you're describing that $7.5 billion bucket of money that the uh, Congress is sending, I think, in two different installments. But quickly, what's the ask? What's the price tag? How much do you want from the state in, the, in these grants? So we're looking at an amount of $250 million, which would have 3% of the total amount that Illinois is found to receive from the federal government. Very interesting. Michael Jacobson joining us uh, from Elgin with a look at the hotel industry, how they're faring during this pandemic. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. We're back in just a moment. You're watching Capital Connection from the Illinois State Capitol. That does it for us this week. Thank you for joining us. You can find our full extended interviews up on our website and on our Capital Connection podcast. We do hope you'll join us at the same time next Sunday for Capital Connection. I'm Mark Maxwell. Stay connected to the Capitol all week. Follow us on Twitter at CapConnectIL or watch reports from our Capitol team on WCIA3. You can also find us on Facebook or WCIA.com.